Hey everybody and welcome to Roadmap to Joy. I'm Megan Dean. I work for Embark. I have two teenagers of my own. I have a 16-year-old daughter who's a junior in high school and a 13-year-old son who's in middle school. And we're here with uh, today with Jake. He's joining us for a second time. We're really excited to have you on, Jake. Yeah, excited to be here. I am uh, Jake Sparks, the Embark Treatment Director. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and been able to work with teens, adolescents, and their families for just a bit over a decade. Um, so super excited to be here. I have, I'm not in the teenager stage yet. I have lots of, I have a herd of small children. <laughs> um, so not yet teens, but um, yeah, very excited to be here and talk about this very important topic. Yeah, definitely. And September is Suicide Awareness Month, which is why we're here today. Unfortunately, this is an ever prevalent topic for many parents. Um, for me personally, just to share with you all, you know, Growing up, I did have some close friends who were impacted by suicide and some family members as well. So this is definitely a personal topic for me and one that I'm really happy to, um, you know, share more information about and, and help get more awareness around. So, yeah, I think um, most it's hard to find someone that's not touched by suicide in some way. Um, myself, person, personally and professionally, again, have encountered it um, and the, the ironic part of it is the science is so good. We know so much about how to treat depression, how to address suicide. Um, and it's really a matter of getting the right information into the right people's hands because um, there's so much that we can do to address um, to, to address the suicide across the country. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I, I guess a good place to start would be this is just a really sensitive topic overall. You know, it's tough to talk about for some people. So really, like, what's the best place to start? Yeah, good question. So I always recommend we start with just some terms because um, it is so uncomfortable that a lot of times I find when a, a family comes and sees me, um, they use a lot of terms that aren't really talking about it as a tried away to talk about it because all of those really sensitive issues, we avoid it directly. So I want to just review a quick set of terms that we do use and then some that I will encourage us not to use. So whenever I have a client come see me and they're exhibiting some sort of what I would say self-injurious behavior, I'm always trying to tease apart is this suicidal self-injurious behavior or non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. So we know there's a population of clients, um, typically adolescents or young adults, who might enact intentionally enact bodily harm as a form of emotional regulation. So this you hear about cutting or other types of self-directed violence. And we know that that's actually not a part of suicide. However, when you're a parent or you he find out you, he, my daughter's been doing what? It's really hard to not jump to. Does she want to be dead? Um, that can be really difficult. So we want to really tease apart: is this suicidal, self-injurious behavior or non-suicidal, self-injurious behavior? And that's so important to start because that really helps identify the treatment trajectory. Now both are problematic, obviously, but that really helps us to identify where we need to go and and what the course of treatment will look like. Um, there's nothing worse than being really misattuned. If I have a client that comes sees me and I just talk for hours about suicide and they're like, I'm not suicidal. Can we give that up? Mm. And um, that that can be a total mismatch. So we want to make sure we get that part right, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. That definitely does. So, so you know, and then what's next as far as you mentioned talking to to our clients and our kids is like, what do you say to them? How do you start that topic with them um, in that conversation? So one of the questions a lot of parents have is if I start bringing it up, Am I going to somehow like put that idea in their head? 
um, is talking about it dangerous and where I think that's mostly coming from is parents particularly see their children as in such a fragile state. And sometimes they've even been operating on like, if I can just make it through the day, how to keep my child happy. They're smiling. They're on the couch. Okay. They're talking to me. Things good. Don't rock the boat. So a lot of parents are just like, if we talk about what's really going on, I'm, that's going to be so stress inducing and I might create yeah, so I get that. Ideation. <laughs> so the research is very clear that doesn't happen. If someone's thinking about suicide, they're thinking about it whether you're talking about it or not. Mm. Okay. Um, so the most protective factor a parent can do, one of the most protective things is they can have some really clear, honest conversations um, and create an atmosphere where there's vulnerability and there's empathy and um, kind of set some norms in the family that we talk about what's really going on. And for, especially for a parent to say, there's nothing too big for me. There's nothing too scary for me. I am 100% bought into you and what you need. I'll sometimes tell parent my clients, I'm willing to walk to hell with you. If that's where we need to go, I don't want you going alone. So let's you, you and I go there together. I love that. That's That's just so empathetic and like putting yourself in their shoes too and really being there for them. So that's great. So what would be like the first question, like a parent, if like a parent feels that maybe their 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 child is going in that direction, like how's, how do they break into that topic with them, like without seeming too overwhelming or overbearing or, you know, what could be like the first question that you ask? Yeah, well, so what's probably already happening is there's some other red flags that parents are seeing around general mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so it's typically clients or, or adolescents are not uh, experiencing suicidal thoughts or suicidal behaviors out of the blue. Mm -hmm. There's typically been an ongoing um, mental health issue. So usually some symptoms of depression, maybe anxiety, um, is was there a major trauma that just occurred? So we hope by the time this question comes up of are you safe, that we have a pattern or a history of talking about mental health together. And that's seen as um, a, a valid, reliable, safe, secure process that a child, parent and a child can go through together. It then that's actually one of the reasons I tell parents, talk to your kids about their mental health because you don't want this to be the first time you've ever talked to them. Right, yeah. Right? You don't want to be like, hey, by the way, I heard this, and then it's like, whoa. Like, you want to be rehearsed and practiced, and um, so that's the first thing I always say is establish, regardless if your kid is sick or not or where they are on the mental health continuum of health, um, we want to establish patterns that reinforce security and safety and so that when you do need to have the conversations, the hard conversations, you already have that relationship and connection that's there. Right. And that rapport is already there and it's it's more of a not a surprise question. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, okay. That um, when that w came up, I might start by saying, are you feeling safe today? Mm -hmm. Okay. Tell me. Tell me how safe you're feeling. Um, and and a lot of times parents like, well, I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want to, you know, push their boundaries. I don't want to push them away. And I always say, well, my experience, I don't know what the research has on this. My experience as a clinician, that if a parent doesn't respond overtly, sometimes the internal narrative of the adolescence is my parent doesn't care. Mm. It's like a fine balance. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. yeah, usually the way, especially if you're already prone to some suicidal ideation, maybe some depression, anxiety, 
those most of the times those adolescents or young adults are not sitting there thinking, my my parents are so respectful of my boundaries. They just love me so much that there was no one to not ask me about these things. They don't think through that. That's not the thought. Mm -hmm. You never ask about it. It's they don't care enough to ask or they're too afraid of what I might say. I am frightening my parents. Right. There were misattuned and we're going to miss each other. Yeah, that makes sense. What about what not to say? Yeah. As a parent. (laughs) (laughs) Equally as important or maybe more so important. So there's a few terms that I hear a lot and I want to eradicate them from our nomenclature as a society. So a couple things that I might hear sometimes is, um, oh, they just want attention. Right. It's like, oh, you're chronically suicidal, uh, so you must just want attention. And so then sometimes parents or even therapists will label that behavior as they'll say, well, it's not really suicidal. It's parasuicidal or suicidal gesture. Or does that make sense? They'll mm-hmm. kind of couch it as like, oh, it's just they she just did it for attention. Mm. Um, and that's really problematic. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so let's not use the term suicidal gesture parasuicidal. Let's not use any of those terms. What we need to get at firstly is saying um, this is suicidal self-injurious behavior or non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. That's why I started with that. Even the term uh, we've been talking a lot about suicide attempt. Some things that get really mixed into that is um, a lot of times I'll hear, well, it was a failed suicide attempt. Hmm. And I will say, that's not a failure. That's a, that's a win. Like failure is not good. Or sometimes I'll hear people talk about uh, it was a successful suicide. And I don't want the word success and suicide in the same sentence. Right. Right. So that's some of the first parameters. We really, again, need to be clear about our language. Uh, this is uh, self-directed harm, suicidal self-directed harm or non-suicidal. And what that that does is it actually frees us up to see um, the child f- to see what's actually going on. So as soon as we say, oh, it's just for attention, well, they don't really want to die and we're just dismissive. Um, I, I always tell parents like, well, think about that for a second. If you're in, if I'm a child, I'm a 15 year old scared to go to middle school. Um, and the way for me to, if I did just want attention, the way for me, I have no other avenues of getting that emotional need met that I have to scream from the rooftop, everyone look at how how much pain I'm in. Look at how distressed I'm in. That's a that's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. It's, it's perfectly natural and normal for a human to want love and care and attention. It's actually necessary. <laughs> so we can't just dismiss it in terms of, oh, they just want attention. Because those are actual, real, valid means. It's a, it's a, it's an effective way to get that, and we can't just dismiss it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And you know, you hear oftentimes, you know, after things have happened with kids, is you know, oh, we did see some warning signs. Oh, wait, we did see cries for help, and I think they are dismissed. And that's kind of to your point of that people dismiss that without really taking it as seriously as maybe we should. Um, yeah. So, or it wasn't a, a genuine attempt because mm-hmm. if you really wanted to, she would have done this. And like, okay, you're totally missing the point here. We need to get to what's this underlying need? Um, why is this child in so much pain and distress? But you ask, so if I'm a parent, how do I start to talk to my kid? If you're seeing a perpetual problem that keeps coming up, then you know that that's serving a function somewhere. There's something adaptive and actually something as crazy as it sounds. Um, 
stabilizing about that. Hmm. Right. So a lot of times when we work with clients that are they've been having suicidal thoughts for five years, like, oh, ever since fifth grade, I've just always thought this. And then they do therapy and they get better and they start their depression really wanes and they find passions and their hobbies and they're excited about life. And then they're like, oh, crap. For the first time in my life, I've, I'm going to be alive till I'm 20. Hmm. I've never thought that I would be alive till, but now that I am, and I, what do I want to do when I grow up? And who do I want to be? And how do I want to vote? And all of these things, all of a sudden, they're having to confront all of those. And that's really hard and stressful. But staying in this place of suicidal thoughts and actions prevents all of that from ever taking place. Mm-hmm. So in that w- kind of warped sense, it's actually a very stabilizing force in someone's life, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. So you mentioned depression. Um, and one, one question that I have as a parent and just, you know, the people that I know is like, do you have to have depression before you get to the point of suicidality, suicidal ideation? Yeah, great question. So, I, and I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head. The majority of those who experience suicidal thoughts and engage in suicidal um, self-injurious behavior likely do have some form of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that's not always the case. So there are some other issues that might come up that would lead to suicide. So I'm thinking other severe mental illness, so some type of psychosis or schizophrenia or something like that, where it's like this seemed fine, and all of a sudden this just comes up out of the blue. Um, so that could be there. Um, sometimes we see it a lot with um, if there's been a trauma. Mm. It's like they were fine, something awful happens, and then ever since that moment, it just the, a switch flips, and all of a sudden they start to feel so disconnected from their body and, and maybe want or start thinking about suicide. Um, it's a little bit of chicken or the egg because you might say, well, doesn't that person also technically qualify as depressed as well? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but you don't have to necessarily have this long you know, track record of months and months and months of being depressed that finally culminate in suicidal ideation. It can happen more quickly, although that's, um, I, th- I, th- I think, a little bit more, a little bit more rare. Okay. Okay. Um, there's also people who um, are very impulsive. Um, so again, maybe attached to some other mental health issues, uh, bipolar or some other cognitive or uh, executive functioning delay where they seem pretty normal and they're actually ha- happy and don't meet criteria for depression. But all of a sudden they get in an argument with a partner or something negative happens and they can be really impulsive and they can go to that dark place almost like a switch is flipped. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so, um, so it's not always depression, but I would say most of the time okay. that's what we're looking at. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So um, what are some of those you, – you're mentioning these like warning signs and things like that that we should be looking for as parents and caregivers. And so uh, – What's like the warning sign that you need to get help now? Like you need to reach out for crisis help um, when it when it comes to suicide. Yeah. So my preference is that we intervene early. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about is well, let's identify the risk factors and the protective factors. And in the theory is the more of the risk factors, the greater likelihood, and the more protective factors, the lower your likelihood. Um, so. Uh, some things I brought some notes here just to make sure I get it all. So some some common risk factors for individuals. So if you've made a prior attempt, mm. okay. Uh, um, so your history of suicidal self-directed violence or self-injury. Um, again, overall mental health. Um, if you have a history of mental health, uh, substances 
That's the other one I was going to say. Sometimes suicide can be attached to a substance. Got it. If had they not been on that substance, substance, um, those ideations or behaviors wouldn't have happened. So what's the substance use? Um, what's that like? Um, is there, how are they doing in their social role? So for adolescents, it's typically, are they going to school? Mm-hmm. Um, are they successful at school? Are they not? So those, those are things. Um, how, ac- how much access do they have to lethal means? Um, and then as a clinician, I always want to know what type of adverse childhood experiences have gone on. We talked, um, you hear on the podcast, we talk a lot about co-regulation mm-hmm. and their ability to, our ability to co-regulate with a safe caregiver drives our ability to self-regulate throughout our life. And if we have these interruptions in early childhood or throughout childhood, our ability to self-regulate will be greatly diminished. And if you can't self-regulate, um, that might be a correlate with suicidal ideation. Got it. So those are some individual factors that we just know risk factors that chronically can build up. So if those are present and then I started to see a major change in behavior, I might think that maybe there's an increase in intensity mm-hmm. of the suicidal ideation or behavior. So um, all of a sudden they start giving away their possessions mm-hmm. or they start to kind of give these pseudo goodbyes or, well, I don't know, nothing really matters. That might give me pause if there is an antecedent event. So uh, an argument, a, a breakup, something like that right. that can really tip the scales. We also know if there's a family history of suicide mm-hmm. um, and then high conflict, high, high stress, um, chaotic relationships where co-regulation can't happen. Those are all really big risk factors that I would want to look at. Okay. That makes sense. Um, as far as, you know, how – to respond to my child when they are with empathy. I know we talked about empathy a lot in the last episode as well. Yeah. So how do you respond with empathy to your child if they're having those suicidal thoughts? One of the things as a, as a therapist, if a client comes in to my office and it, it, it seems sometimes it seems like it's always uh, as, as a therapist, I'm maybe – I don't ever want to be caught off guard, obviously. Um, So when a client comes in and they say, I've been having, here's the thoughts I've been having, and here's the actions I've taken. um, My first inclination is I always want to say something like, gosh, thank you so much for telling me. Hmm. I'm so glad. I hate that you're going through this, but I'm so glad to know it. It could have Mm -hmm. been easy to not tell me, and I'm so glad that didn't happen. What I notice, so when I do that, so it does two things. One is it helps the client or the child be like, okay, he's there's some security here. He's got. I'm not going to overwhelm him. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I'm, he's not afraid of me now. He's not. He's like, oh, he's glad to know this. That's a little bit weird, but okay, I'm gonna see where this goes. Um, so I, it kind of starts to instill like, okay, we got this. Oh, this is an issue we can handle. The thing that I like saying it for me is it reminds me. I got this. this. Is something we can handle because yeah. sometimes even therapists are not impervious to emotions and yeah. to fear, and there's all these things, and that's something that no therapist wants to hear, but yet it's the thing that we most want to hear. Right? Like it's if it's real for you, I want to know it. Yeah. Right. So if you're going through hell, I need to be there with you. So please include me in on this. So that's always the first. Maybe not those exact words, but that first sense is like, thank you for telling me. Mm -hmm. What else can you tell me? Can I ask some questions? Um, And then I would start 
you know, starting to tease that apart through our safety, um, safety assessment and safety planning um, that we can do as trained professionals. If I was a parent, I would want to reinforce that same idea of thank you so much for telling me what else is real for you. Mm-hmm. How else can we talk? Mm-hmm. What else can you share? Um, in in general, um, if you're having that talk, I hope that your 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 family is already receiving some mental health services. Mm-hmm. If not, this is certainly the time to reach out and get those services accommodated for. In in general, we we kind of look at this hierarchy as um, we talk about. I'll go back to some terms if that's okay. Yeah, because this is where yeah. sometimes we get lost. <laughs> um, so a lot of times parents will couch us in it's suicidality. Mm-hmm. And I really don't like that term suicidality because it's kind of okay. this catch-all. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know and don't make me even think about it. It's just something out there and we'll just call it suicidality. I actually want to think about the the specifics. Like the devil is in the details to some degree. Yeah. So I always separate it in, well, there's suicidal ideations and suicidal behaviors. Okay. And somewhere in there, there's suicidal urges. Okay. Okay. So a client can come and say, I have these, I, these thoughts. They keep coming to me. Yeah. I don't want to act on them. I haven't been acting on them. But here are the thoughts that I think. I think if I could just do X, Y, and Z, and that thought plays out in my head. Um, so I'll, we so we kind of see how far around that continuum. Okay, so you have the thoughts, but you've not done any preparatory actions. You haven't thought about, you know, I'll ask, have you thought about how you might play this out? Like, oh, no, I just think about what it would be like to not have to be in so much pain. Right, right. Uh, so that's kind of one continuum. Then I want to start asking, like, well, tell me about the urges. Do you have, if they're like, yes, here's my thoughts. Here's how I would do it. Okay, have you had urges? Mm. Have you had impulses? Well, I almost did something yesterday, but I stopped myself. Like, okay, let's talk through that. Um, and then the last kind of far end of the continuum was the what we call suicidal behaviors. And this could include things like preparatory behaviors. So um, things that they may do in advance to put their mm-hmm. put a, some affairs in order or to collect or gather materials, whatever that might be. So as th- those are kind of how we think about risk. If you're on one end, if you're just having the thought, no urges, no behaviors, you're on the continuum, right? Um, but you're at this end. Right. Um, the farther down you go, the higher the risk and the more immediate intervention that's necessary. Right. And as a parent, you're like anywhere along that that spectrum or that continuum is is scary, and you want to get help right away. Um, so I, you know, as a parent, being in that myself, sometimes it, you know, it just it's hard for a parent to be like, okay, so you're just in the beginning of it. All right, we're okay, but you really have to take action still. Yeah. So yeah. And some things what I recommend, sometimes it's, so, so I'll get asked like, well, do I need to take, take my daughter to the ER? Yes. What? So again, if my thought is if you have to ask, mm-hmm. the answer is probably yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but because what, what we don't want to do, I, I've seen parents, um, I, I'm, I'm against someone receiving intervention they don't need. It's so important that we are that we take it seriously and how we respond as caregivers will directly impact how the child interprets the events. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So I've had parents that are like, oh, we kind of just bumped along. We kind of just kept going business as usual. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, thanks for telling me, but let's get your math homework done mm-hmm. tonight and we'll talk again tomorrow. And I was like, oh, it's not that bad. And, and Things just keep going on. I've seen other parents uh, say, we didn't actually come to find out need to go to the ER, but having this kind of blow up 
made all of us look at it. Mm -hmm. And we actually kind of needed for it to blow up because we were just in this rut of ah, same old, same old. And we needed something big and drastic to happen to our family so that we could all wake up and take it, take it more seriously and see where we are. Um, Most parents are not trained mental health professionals. Right. (laughs) Um, So it is always a little bit of a guessing game. And this is not something that you want to, to guess at. Right. So if you're concerned and you're asking the question, you should take immediate action. Uh, so maybe this is a great time to identify help that you can have. So the new uh, 988 number, yep. uh, super helpful. They can call and kind of walk the parent through or even the adolescent through some steps and give us some clear direction. Um, parents should be aware of other local agencies. Mm-hmm. So if I have a client or a child, if I'm the parent of a teen that sometimes ends up on this continuum, mm-hmm. Um, I would know what, what are my local resources? How do I connect to someone? Hopefully you're already working with a mental health professional. Right. We want to almost prepare for the worst and hope we never need that. But that's not the time to be like, man, we never confronted this reality. Right. Uh, we want to make sure we have a clear plan and, and know how the process works. Definitely. And now and nowadays there's even those mental health urgent cares that are popping up. Yeah. Becoming more and more common. So at least it's a place you can go that's yeah. a lot more um, accessible. Uh, which is nice. So I know there's some of those places that then, you know, you then get continued care after that. But it's a great place to go if you're a parent and you're not sure what to do, but you mm-hmm. hear these things and you need to take action right away. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So so you mentioned family a lot. I've heard that. Yeah. The family system a lot. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about why it's so important, especially in this situation, to have that family support system. Yeah, great, great, great question. So w- one of the things I'm always telling parents is, um, first of all, being a parent is hard. Yes, hats off to every parent. <laughs> I always want to be sensitive, but I, so I sometimes if I have the relate, I can kind of joke with them and say, "I don't know whether or not your parenting is part of the problem." Yeah, it might be. Let's just acknowledge the fact that it might be. Yeah, it might not be, but let's just put that out there. However, I do know that your parenting is a hundred percent a part of the solution. Nice. So one way or the other, we need you. You need to be involved. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I've worked with I don't know how many dozens and dozens and dozens of clients um, who chronically had suicidal ideation, had a lot of suicidal actions. Mm. Um, but it was always, is this a re- actual genuine? Parents will always get in that. Is this real? Is this not real? And I always would say, well, how much harder does she have to shake you to say, right. show up for me? So what when I when we talk about families, any again, I said this before, any perpetual problem is going to require a systemic solution. Mm-hmm. So if it's an issue that keeps coming up, um, that suicidal thought thinking or that even that suicidal actions has is has a role in the family system. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's something about that that's offering s- safety, sustainability. Uh, maybe it's if I'm an adolescent and I'm in so much emotional pain and hurt, but I no one's going to pay attention to that, but they'll pay attention to my physical pain and hurt. They'll respond. And what's great about that is I never have to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I never have to talk about our emotions. And the parents are like, yeah, we never have to talk about emotions. Let's just stick her in the hospital. You know, so sometimes that plays out. Um, not all the time. But there is, yeah, there is those dynamics. So most of our parents, as we were talking about, don't understand neurobiologically what's happening for their children. Right, right. As they say, well, she walks and talks like an adult. She's sixteen. I mean, she can drive her car, mm-hmm. and it's a really tough conversation where we start to say yes, and in these moments, emotionally, 
she maybe is more like a six-year-old and you're expecting her to be an adult, but really what she needs is this totally different approach. And how can you meet her? Her nervous system's firing, uh, totally dysregulated. We use this terminology of like flooded, disconnected. Um, how can you, mom and dad, be there to be a co-regulatory force? Because she's needing, well, shouldn't she be able to co-regulate on her own? She's 16. <laughs> well, if she could, she would be. <laughs> um, so she's showing us that she's not, so she needs parents. She needs the caregivers to come in and, and let's talk in that. This will be new for your family, so let's come in and talk about how yeah. how this can look for you all. Is that yeah, I so, mean, no parent is perfect either, and, you know, we can't even co-regulate ourselves all the time like we've talked about. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a family system. Yeah, and that's – you bring up another great point is that it's not possible for a dysregulated parent yeah. to provide a co-regulatory experience for their child. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I cannot imagine something more dysregulating than your child experiencing suicidal thoughts or suicidal behaviors. Exactly. Um, so the moment when your child needs you the most is probably when you're the least equipped to be there for right, them. Right. And um, so that's really why it's so important to get that family helping, that family support. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, would you even go as far as to recommend for the parents to go and get mental health, you know, counseling and therapy themselves? Uh, yeah. So my bias is that most of us yeah. could use a little bit more therapy yep. in our lives just in general. So yep. as a blanket statement, yes. Um, I can't diagnose via podcast yeah. for yeah. every single family. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a great opportunity for the parents. Again, maybe you maybe you were part of the problem. Maybe you have been missing, um, been missing something. And there's you have a hole in your own parenting style that's going to perpetuate unless you fix it, or maybe not. Maybe you are the perfect parent, mm. but go, <laughs> maybe you do exist. Um, um, but going through this experience in and of itself can be painful and traumatic enough that you'll need some help and support. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's just the experience ex itself can can yeah. you know m make you want and need to get therapy yourself yeah. to be able to just handle the stress and the 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 emotions that come along with all of this. So yeah. Yep. It's also worth noting that I've never met a parent who wasn't also parented. Right. And so many of us parent our children however we were parented. Right. Whether we want to or not or in reaction. So so again, yeah, I just love that family. Like let's see what's ha understand uh let's see what's happening as a system mm -hmm. as a whole cuz we're all going to be a part of it and it's going to require the whole family. Yeah. Um, even questions that sometimes like, okay, so if my 15-year-old child is experiencing this, but I have this 11-year-old yeah. child, like they're seeing it. Are they're... we not going to talk about it? How do you talk about suicide to an 11-year-old yeah. or a six-year-old? Like they feel it and they know something's up. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of those family dynamics that even if they weren't a problem to begin with, they're going to need some some direct attention. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that with families who have multiple siblings, you know, in yeah. the household, um, there's a lot of impact on the whole family in this situation. So even that younger, older sibling can really, you know, um, need some counseling themselves <laughs> yeah. to help them through the whole family through this situation. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely important. So here's a question. So what if you go to your child to talk about uh, the feelings that they're having and they push you away, like they don't want to talk about it? Then what do you do? Yeah. So Totally. Ex maybe, maybe that's expected. Maybe it's not, but it's, I think, fairly common. Um, so what I always say as a parent, your job is to do what is developmentally appropriate for your child. 
independent of what that child's preferences are. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so sometimes when we're the most distressed, we're the most hurting, um, we're the least able to care for ourselves is the times we most don't want anyone to help us. Yeah. Like, leave me alone. I need, and we, so it's hard to be respectful, but what we always say, so we talk about this co-regulation. So a caregiver provides experiences of co-regulation, which from a child, I have, I have very small children, so I think about this a lot. Yeah. Um, as a child, we co-regulate together, and that builds the scaffolding for future self-regulation to take place on. Like that's what actually builds the parts of the brain that's needed for self-regulation is co-regulation. Yep. Now, what's hard about this is when you are most dysregulated is when you are the least receptive to empathy. Mm. You're the least receptive to care. That's actually a great indicator that you're not regulate, right, regulated right. yourself. So I'll have um, talk with clients. They'll come into my office and they'll say, oh, my parents just need to leave me alone. I went in my room and I'm calming down. I just need to calm down on my own. And I would say, okay, that makes sense. But are you actually self-regulating or are you becoming more dysregulated? Because if you are self-regulating, you will become more open to your parents' empathy. Got it. So if you go in your room for 30 minutes and if you truly self-regulated, you would come out and be receptive to your parents. If you come out of the room and you're just as unreceptive as you were before, mm -hmm. I mean, then maybe there's some other relational dynamics of where the relationship, but that yeah, in yeah. general, <laughs> if you cannot be receptive to empathy from a caregiver, whomever that is, mm -hmm. that's a sign that you're dysregulated. You're dysregulated, yeah. And when that's happening, that's actually the caregiver's job. Like, I don't ask my three-year-old um, in the middle of a tantrum what type of ice cream he wants at that moment, right? right? I just say, like, you don't need, here's what you actually need. I'm going to parent you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you what you need because you're a three-year-old and I don't expect, it would be wrong of me to expect for you to know exactly what you need in this moment. Yeah, really take control. You have yeah. to take control of that situation, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it is, can be hard of, and that's why I say it's best if you've had a long, ongoing history of talking about mm -hmm. this. But if um, some families are like, we've never talked about emotions or how we feel and all of a sudden my child ends up in the er and this is the first time i've ever asked my son how he feels inside right or how he feels about himself i've never had that conversation and so i'm like well i can understand him not opening up to sure. you immediately yep. the first time yep uh, so we want we want to make sure we we build those but yeah sometimes parents get so i want them to be happy and i don't want them to feel upset and if i can just keep their emotions in check all the time. Yeah, that's a tough job. <laughs> yeah, you'll ne you're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to be able. To, it's not your job to keep them happy in this window. It's your job to prepare them for this. That's right. Because life's going to give them everything, and it's your job to always meet them developmentally with what they need, independent of what their preference is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for answering that. So I think we've covered almost everything on our, our list of topics. Jake, anything else that you want to share? You know, you're such an expert in this area. Is there anything else that you've seen come up with your clients or parents that would be really important and helpful to share? Um, so I would say, so can I share a couple of statistics? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things to keep in mind. So one in three young adults between the ages of 18 and 25 experienced mental, behavioral, or emotional health issues in the past year. Hmm. Suicide was the leading cause of death for 18 to 25-year-olds. 
Well, it's historically been, um, and it's even stretching down into adolescence. Twenty six point nine percent of teens, um, ages twelve to seventeen, have one or more mo- mental, emotional, developmental, behavioral problems. So, almost thirty percent of all teens have some sort of emotional mental health problem. So these rates are going the wrong direction. Um, so one of the things, if if it's up to you to fix the suicide problem, what's you have unlimited funds and resources, how would you do it? The number one thing that I would do is for parents to um, stop giving their kids phones mm. at such an early age. Yeah. So as we talked about it's up to the parent to be developmentally attuned to what the child's ready yep. for. Yep. Um, and we can see the impacts of social media, particularly on our young women oh, yeah. compared to our young men, is very different. And I, most parents are widely uneducated. They might have a general sense of like, oh, they're in their phones, haha. Um, but they don't understand or they underestimate the emotional impact for sure. that that can have. Um, so that's what I would recommend is or just all parents to be aware of and watch out for is the in the influence of 24 um, seven social media. Yeah. 24 seven. It's like self-judgments open all the time. Yep. You can screw and see what everyone else is doing and see all the things that you're missing out on. You have all all. There's just so much pressure that's baked into to having to maintain that. Okay. So you don't get to come home and just turn off. Right. You come home and you have to turn back on. You got to be there and be present. There's just such a strong influence that it's um, really negatively impacting all of our mental For sure. For a variety of, of reasons. I feel like that's a whole podcast topic in itself, you know, about, yeah. uh, you know, cell phones and electronics and just the prevalence of that with kids. Yeah. Um, you know, personally, my being a parent, I've had to struggle with that as well and, and really set boundaries there. So uh, it's a big topic yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we can jump into that yeah. uh, next time. But I think, again, for parents to be willing, able and willing to go wherever they need to go yep. to meet their kid. Um, it, we also know that suicide is something that m- many adolescents struggle with thoughts and not every thought turns into a behavior. And so it's important for parents to remember, my child told me this. That's an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. I am so, you should go to bed that night feeling great that your child disclosed this really scary, vulnerable thing to yeah. you. You might also go to bed feeling awful that they're in that place. Yeah. But wouldn't you rather know it mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're Yep. So. Open communication. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's important for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, great, great to be here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely gave us some actionable items as parents on what to look out for, what to do, you know, how to uh, be more aware just of suicide um, in general. And so I think that was really helpful for me as a parent and hopefully for everybody else. Um, just wanted to thank you guys for joining us today. And also, please make sure you subscribe to our Roadmap to Joy podcast and also follow us on all of our social media. Thanks so much, Jake. Appreciate thank, you today. Yep. Thank you, Megan.